So Monday, I, I got the I got the sense that I should talk about the name of Jesus. Actually, it's a phrase I've been doing, as you can tell, for the past four weeks. Something right out of the uh, Christmas story, uh, the events of Christmas, and uh, we started all the way back at the garden, which is where we're going again, uh, back to the garden uh, of Eden, and uh, we traced it all the way up through the Christmas story, which of course we read just a couple of nights ago at our Christmas Eve program. Thank you for all of you that participated and, and played music and sang and performed. And uh, uh, one of these days we're going to get the kinks worked out of that sound system or we're going to buy a whole new mixing board. I don't know which. Something's going to happen there. Uh, or we'll hire somebody that knows how to use it. might be more like it. But uh, uh, anyhow, thank you all for participating. We really appreciate that. Uh, I've often used the number that there are 250 prophecies in the Old Testament concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, it's common to go on the internet and look that up and you will see people say, well, there are 300 or there are 125 or there are 50 prophecies or there are 47 prophecies. It's really amazing. No one can even count how many prophecies there are. And uh, the same thing is true with the names of Jesus. I kind of felt like the Holy Spirit wanted me to talk about the names of Jesus. And as I started studying it last week, I realized he must have meant the name of Jesus. Because when I looked up the names of Jesus, I found that there are over 300 names of Jesus in the Old Testament. Well, they're not just names, they're titles. But it's a remarkable number when you think about it. Uh, and I thought, wow. So I started studying some of those names, and I thought, mm, I don't know. You know, you guys don't want to stay here till 9 o'clock tonight. Uh, so I thought maybe I'd call this back just a little bit, you know. As we've already seen in, in previous messages that just 12 prophecies uh, that we went through, went through 12 Old Testament prophecies uh, concerning the coming of the Messiah, the birth of Jesus, and we already saw the statistic probability of that is 1 in 10 to the 17th, which in, uh, in practical terms, one in, the, the chance of something happening 1 in 10 to the 17th has often been illustrated as covering the state of Texas with two feet of quarters and asking someone to go in and pick out a specific quarter while blindfolded. Uh, just walk anywhere you want in Texas. I, I don't know how you'd walk anywhere in Texas with two feet of quarters on the ground. That doesn't make sense to me. But I think I'd pick mine right out of the edge, you know. Uh, but uh, that gives you an idea of 1 in 10 to the 17th. Uh, a billion is an enormous number. Somebody said a billion minutes ago Jesus was walking on the earth. And I, I, I find that hard to believe. But a billion is, is a lot. I don't even know how much a trillion is. Uh, but uh, the point is that 12 prophecies are enough for anyone with an open mind to reasonably understand that God's power to work miracles is in action in the Bible. This is a miracle that this could be predicted two, three thousand years in advance. In fact, this first prophecy today is is three thousand years before the birth of Jesus. It's now uh, five thousand years old. This first prophecy I want to go to. Uh, now, this first prophecy, we're, the, the focus today is on the name of Jesus. What does his name mean, and what does it mean to us? Certainly the first prophecy about Jesus is pretty obscure. You read this and say, The Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. And upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head, 
and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now, the word bruise, you know, is the word crush. And when you read it, thou shalt crush his, let me go back and read it again, and, and her seed, it, that is the seed, the offspring, if you will, of the woman, will crush your head, and you will crush his heel. Uh, some Many people have speculated that that's a prophecy of the nails being driven into the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of Satan being broken at the cross. I don't know how literal to make that. I don't know how much you need to make this prophecy work, except that you know you do know, as obscure as this passage is, I mean, you read it and you think, I, I just can imagine Adam and Eve walking out of the garden having been kicked out talking about, what did he mean when he said that? I mean, I, I read that and I think I know what he meant. And yet still, I think, what did he mean when he said that? He could have been clearer, right? You know, as obscure as it was, though, Adam and Eve, they found hope in that message. They found hope for the future. In fact, it was shortly after that that Adam named, named his wife the mother of all living. He could have named her the mother of all death, right? But he called her the mother of all living. They, they could foresee, because of this prophecy, which is hard for me to understand, they could see a future where one day the deceptions and the lies of Satan, the damage of sin would be destroyed, a future of hope and not despair. And I find that interesting that they could see that. A promise that from the offspring of Eve, from that day forward, the promise was carried that from the offspring of Eve would come one that would be injured, yes, but would also ultimately be victorious and overcome sin, overcome death, and restore us. Now, obviously, more prophecies had to come. As many as 300. I actually saw one guy on the Internet that said there are 500 prophecies. Tucked quietly in this passage is a question that we're going to address today. Now, you don't see it when you read it, but it's sort of hidden in there. And the question is this. Why is there no mention of Adam? Why is it the seed of the woman? Now, theologians will tell us that Eve was deceived. Eve was deceived. Adam was deliberate. It was Adam's choice to follow Eve into rebellion. And the Bible teaches us that our sin nature doesn't come through our mothers, but it comes through our fathers. And it's called Adam's sin. In Romans 5.12, let me skip up to that. I think I have that next. For by one man... You'd think it would say one woman. For by one man, it was charged to the Adam. The sin of rebellion, deliberate rebellion against God was not charged against Eve. She was tricked. Adam knew what he was doing. So the sin, you know, people all sometimes want to blame Eve for what went on there, but God blames Adam. For by, the, for by one man, sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. Hinted at, way back then, 5,000 years ago, hinted at is the virgin birth, which is so important to the purposes of God and the plan for the Lord Jesus Christ, because the sin nature passes through the Father. 700 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah told us this passage, Isaiah 7:14. this was 36, no, 2,600 years after the garden. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign Behold, a virgin shall conceive and shall bear a son, and they'll call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. God with us is preposterous when you think about it. So we, we stand here in our fundamental churches, in our Bible-believing uh, positions, 
and we talk about the literal interpretation of Scripture, and we think to ourselves, it's preposterous. It's preposterous to think that God would take on human form. What did you read in John 1.1? You know, you read that, you know, in the beginning was the Word. Is that the passage you read? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning was the Word. So this God, this God that existed in the beginning, later on in the creation story, decided to take on human form. It's a preposterous idea, but he did it. That our God would do this kind of thing. Now people say, well, uh, why would he do that? Well, the answer is found in this first prophecy and in the understanding that the sin nature passes through the Father and that he had to do it, he had to skip Adam's fallen nature in order to be born sinless. And if Almighty God hadn't have been born sinless, he wouldn't have been able to die for my sins. As a sinner, had he been born a sinner, he would have had to die for his own sins. But be, this is your standard fundamental definition of why the virgin birth is important. He had to be sinless and holy to die for me, which is what he did. He had to be sinless and holy to die for a fallen world. He had to be God to die for all of us. So because he was an infinite being who took on human form and a sinless character, he became a possible sin payment uh, for you and I. That's the purpose. Impossible, see, people say. Well, everything God does is impossible. When you think about anything you read in the Bible that God is in action, everything he does is impossible. This is, this is a being that the, the old California preacher said stood on the precipice of nothing and called into existence everything out of his own being and said, let there be light. And there was light. There was light. Is there anything impossible for God? The angel asked. God can do anything he wants. Now, some will tell you that this idea of a virgin birth is unnecessary. They'll tell you it's unbelievable. Well, it is unbelievable, but it is also necessary, not unnecessary. Some will say it's even ridiculous to think it were even possible. They say miracles like this cannot happen. But every individual, every one of you who has ever put your trust in Jesus Christ can prove with your own life otherwise because you are as much a, a miracle of God's creation as is the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are as much a miracle as is the creation of the earth. You, you can go back in your own life and remember the time that you bowed your head in sin and in shame and you called out to God because you knew you couldn't save yourself. You knew that whatever your problems were, whether it was uh, you know, an addiction, whether it was uh, moral failings, whether it was uh, whatever, whatever your actual current condition, condition was at the time, you knew that you could not change yourself. And yet when you bowed your head and asked Jesus to save you, all those problems fell away. God raised you up miraculously. And as they sang, I didn't ask them to sing that, but as they sang, those chains fell away. You rose up and your chains were gone. Now it seemed, it was so subtle, and it took so many years, at times we forget what God has done in our own lives. 
it doesn't happen, at least it didn't for me, overnight. But the fact is the slave to sin was freed from his chains because the son came and his death was infinite and his infinite death could pay the penalty of our sins and crush the power of Satan in our lives. I love the story of St. Augustine when one of his former girlfriends hollered down the road to him, Augie baby, Augie baby. And he started to duck in and she says, it's me, it's me. And he looked back at her and he said, yes, but it's not me. I love that because it's true. You run into the old nature, you run into the old friends and you realize it's not you because God has done a work in your life. For me, it was lying, it was stealing, it was fits of anger, and it was a bunch of other things I'm not going to mention. But for many of you, it may have been alcohol, or it might have been drugs, or other things that you don't want to talk about. But you know, this is what Paul said, and such were some of you. That list prior to this, I didn't want to read because it's too unpleasant the day after Christmas. But if you go back to 1 Corinthians 6, and instead of reading verse 11, you read 9, 10, and 11, you'll see his list of character traits that describe us before we met the Lord Jesus Christ. It is an unpleasant list. It includes my lying and stealing and anger problems, but it has a lot of other things that we don't like to talk about in mixed company. And that's what Paul says about us, and such were some of you, but you are washed. You have been sanctified. You've been cleansed of your sin. Sanctified means you're set aside for the master's use. Not only has God cleansed us and worked a miracle in our life, broken our chains, and cleansed us of the filth of our past, but he's also set us aside for his purposes. That's what sanctified means. You are justified. That means your trial is past. You're justified. That means God the Father has already passed judgment on you and declared you. Justification is a judicial, a judge's, declaration of guiltlessness you are not only clean washed you are not only set aside for the master's use but you are sanctified i'm sorry you are justified your sins have been put behind you and you have been judicially declared not guilty before the throne of god in the name of our lord jesus christ and this by the spirit of our god in christ we found freedom didn't we we didn't just try harder. It wasn't a positive attitude that lifted it up because when you bowed your head to receive Jesus Christ, you knew you couldn't do it. You didn't just turn your own life around. God made a miraculous change in your life. My friends at home noticed that in me. And it's interesting to see over the past 50 years how many of them have been had their lives turned around because of God's first work in my life. And I see them on Facebook now posting scriptures, and I think, wow, they would have never posted scriptures back then, you know. And it's fascinating to see how God has worked through the changes that He wrought in my life. And I know you can tell the same story. The point is, it was a miraculous new birth. It was a new creation in my life and your life. Uh, this passage here, I, I like this passage, therefore, is 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature, the King James read. But the word in the original means he's a, a new original formation. Uh, a lot of other translations will put a new creation. I like that. My life is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. 
That's the story of creation in our own lives. We are living proof that God is the creator God of the universe and that God came in human form and took on my sins. As Paul told us, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Now, the virgin birth is vital to avoiding the collective stain of man's sin. And being born without sin meant he could die for me and not himself. So that 2,000 years later, when I called upon his name, that old verse Romans kicked in, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's the promise. It isn't whosoever quits smoking first, or whosoever doesn't cuss for a week, or whosoever doesn't lose his temper for a month. I'd be lucky to lose, not lose my temper for three hours. It isn't that. It's whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord. The virgin birth is what makes that possible. Now, just Friday night, we were reading this passage, talking to Mary first in Luke, and then we're going to talk to Joseph in uh, Matthew. Luke 1.20 says, And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou, thou hast found favor with God. That would terrify me if something popped into my bedroom and told me that. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. So this is what the message is about, is his name. And he shall be great. Now it's interesting to me that the angel doesn't tell her what the name Jesus means. Maybe because, you know, being Jewish, she already knew what the name Jesus means. He shall be great. He tells him what Jesus is going to be like. He shall be great. And he shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. Now while Gabriel didn't tell her, you know, why this miraculous baby, this baby born without a human father, would be called Jesus. There are some things he tells her that I picked out here that I think are interesting. Notice he does tell her, this baby is going to be pretty awesome. And the important thing is the first. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Highest, which is another expression for God. He will be called the Son of the Highest. Now, one of Jesus' favorite nicknames for himself is the Son of Man, because he wanted to emphasize his humanity when he was around us. But the fact is, he is the Son of God. He's the Son of the Highest. He's God's Son. He's not Adam's Son. That's the point. He's not Adam's son. He's not born in the lineage of the male human race that was tainted with sin when Adam rebelled in the garden. It is the seed of the woman, not the seed of the man. He's also told Mary that he'll reign on the throne of his distant grandfather David, which all automatically tells her he's going to be the Messiah. They've been waiting for this guy for a very, very long time. He also tells Mary that he will be Israel's king forever. And that tells you that this guy, this promised baby in your, in your womb is going to be God. He's going to reign forever and his kingdom will have no end. I'm certain Mary went back to her memory verses. You know, no one in her day had a, had a Bible. They, they didn't, no one, unless you were extremely wealthy, mostly the towns would pitch in and they would try to pay for a copy because their copiers had to be a guy with a, with a quill and an inkwell, and he would handwrite the entire thing. And they spent their whole lives copying that kind of thing. They were called scribes. And it cost an awful lot of money to have a copy of the Scriptures. 
So really, only in Mary's town, if they were lucky, would they have some of the scrolls. They probably wouldn't even have the whole Old Testament. But they were read these things every Sunday when they, well, say every Friday night when they went to church. They were read these things, and I'm sure she would go back. So I'm certain Mary went back, and she was trying to remember what are the prophecies concerning this guy. And I know uh, one of the ones she probably went back to in her mind was Isaiah 9, 6, which is a favorite of mine. For unto us a child is born, Unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. That's everything that the, that the uh, angel had told her. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Now, it's interesting that the disciples didn't ask Jesus about this because that's, that's a remarkable set of, and that's just four of the hundreds of names that Jesus had. But when you think about it, the Mighty God... This little baby that was going to be born in a manger is, in fact, the creator God of the universe. He's also the everlasting father. Not that we really understand it, how God could become a man and live amongst us and then leave this earth and go back to running the universe. It isn't like we understand it. I don't understand it at all. And I know Thomas had the same problem. He said, Lord, just show us a father and we'll be satisfied. And Jesus goes, have I been with you so long a time that you don't understand? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And I would, well, I probably wouldn't have said anything, but I would have liked to have said, no, I don't understand. (laughs) Could you go on a little bit more about this, Jesus? Because I don't get it. I, I really don't get it. You are God the Father. If you've seen the Father, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This is no ordinary son of Adam. This is, in fact, the Son of God. And that, of course, is the point and the purpose of the virgin birth. Clearly, Mary understood that it was this promise that would be the promised Messiah of which Gabriel spoke. Clearly, this birth would be a miracle. This baby would be God's son. Now, in Matthew, the angel goes to Joseph, who's having some second thoughts of his own, having found out that his, his betrothed is with child. And uh, he was trying to figure out what he should do. Uh, I'm sure he was having a little trouble sleeping that night. So Gabriel shows up there in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 20. Behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. No other man was involved. That's the promise. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. That's the definition of his name, by the way. For he shall save his people from their sins, but shall save his people from their sins. His people. We're talking about God. Israel is God's people. So you have right in the beginning here, Joseph if he'd have thought about what this angel was saying, we're dealing with God's people who's going to be saved by this miraculous child now developing in his betrothed. Although Joseph was not the biological father, he was the legal head of the home, and consequently it fell to him to name the child. Well, I'm sure Gabriel went to him for more reasons than to just give Joseph ideas for names, 
but I do believe that that was one of the primary purposes of this visit. God the Father wanted to be very certain that God the Son would be named Jesus. It's no joke, it's no accident that God picked that name. Gabriel said to name him Jesus. Now, that's the Greek pronunciation of his name. We use the word Joshua, and frequently you'll hear Jesus referred to as Joshua. But actually, in the Hebrew, it's Yeshua. And Jews will often recognize that's a very common name in Israel in Mary's day, and it's a common name today. In the Aramaic, which most likely Gabriel was speaking to Joseph at the time, because after the captivity, the Jews really, the majority of Jews lost their ability to speak Hebrew. And you can kind of prove that because at the cross, at one point, Jesus said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, and they thought he was calling for Elijah. They didn't realize he was speaking pure Hebrew, and he was saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, probably the, the priests standing around or the Pharisees understood what he was saying because some of them still spoke Hebrew. So my guess is that when Gabriel came to Joseph that day, he was speaking Aramaic. And the Aramaic, Aramaic pronunciation is something that goes like Yahashua. It means Jehovah the Savior. Now, Jehovah, they weren't even allowed to say that word. Jehovah. In fact, we don't even know how to pronounce it, nor do they, because they weren't allowed to pronounce it. So you just had two letters, you know, and, and you couldn't pronounce it. But they understood that the name Yehoshua meant Jehovah, the unpronounceable God, the unnameable God, the unspeakable God, the God above all gods is my Savior. That's what the name Jesus means. You know, it's interesting that that's one of the words we use the most for swearing. It's as if we're just condemning ourselves to eternal hell by using Jesus' name in vain instead of admitting to the fact that we can't save ourselves. We're on our own. We're without hope in the world. And unless we call on the name of Jesus, we have no chance in the world of ever making it to heaven. So when we say the name Jesus, we're reminded that God is our Savior. Every time you say it. I would have asked Linda to say, uh, sing the song, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Uh, there's something about that name, but I don't think she knows it. Do you? Yeah. Huh? Not on guitar. I didn't think he did. Now Matthew adds this. He says, now all this was done, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet saying, behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And just in case you don't know what Emmanuel means, it means God with us. It must have been staggering to go over and sit down with Mary as she's holding this little baby and understanding that this is the creator God of the universe in her arms. I just can't imagine what it would be like. But when we say the name Jesus, we are reminded that He is our Savior. God came down and lived a holy and sinless life. And because He was born without sin, because He was born of a virgin, He could then die for me. And because He was God, He could die for all of us as His death could be for everyone. I love this passage. I almost never end a service without it. 
Paul in 2 Corinthians writes, For He, that's God the Father, you've got to go back and read the chapter to get the context. For He, God the Father, hath made Him, that's Jesus, the Son. For He, God, hath made Jesus to be sin for us, who knew no sin. There's your virgin birth. You hear it? Every time you see that He was sinless, Jesus said to the Pharisees, Which of you convinceth me of sin? Yeah. Find something I've ever done wrong. I dare you. He knew no sin. In order that, Hina in the Greek, in order that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. He took my sin on that cross. And when I called on His name and I said, Jesus, now I didn't have a very faithful uh, entrance into this Christian walk. I just said, Lord, if this is true, if you killed your son to make it possible for me to come into heaven, I want it to be true for me. If this is true, and it was, and my life changed from that day forward. Of course, I fell asleep. I didn't know till the next day that something was different. But I'm telling you, something was different. There was a dramatic change in my life because of that prayer. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. I don't think you read this in John 2, 2, but this is the same book. And he is the propitiation. That's a big word. It just means sin payment. He is the sin payment. He is what is offered for sin to make it possible that God could forgive me. And He, Jesus, is the propitiation, the sin payment for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Halos cosmos in the Greek, the whole creation. Sin, you know, He will crush your head. The work of Satan was crushed at the cross. And the power of sin in our lives was broken the moment we call on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to wrap up our little Joseph story here. My sister called me, I, I want to say a week ago, and she said, Bob, I have this, this uh, I think the, the girl's a Hindu, and she said she's a girlfriend to one of my nieces, and she said, I forget her name, I should have written it down, asked me a question, and I said, what's that? You know, my sister has a deep theology question she calls me and then of course my first answer is always i don't know i'll look it up you know uh, she said well was joseph married to mary when they went to bethlehem and i thought well of course he was and then i thought yeah, i don't remember reading that where is that and i said you know nancy is my sister i said i i, I don't know uh i really don't know and i said he must have been so I actually started digging on that. And the truth is, and I didn't know this, there's been enormous discussions about that question over the years. I wasn't aware of that. Uh, theologians take both sides. Uh, they argue about it. Uh, of course, it sells books, you know. Uh, but uh, I, I've, I read a guy, a couple of, I don't think it was yesterday, it was the day before yesterday, and I, I should give him credit. Normally I write their names down, but I don't think I did. Uh, and he went to this verse here. This is the same verse we've been at ever since Friday night. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him. He did as the angel of the Lord had bidden and took unto him his wife. Now, I mean, it's a good point that you really wouldn't expect uh, Joseph to be wandering around the countryside leading a pregnant woman around if he wasn't married to her. It just would be so incredibly improper in his day that 
truthfully, had anyone known he wasn't married to her, if that were the case, I don't think it was the case, but they would have stoned them both had they, had they thought that they weren't married. But it says right here, he did what he was told to do, and the angel said, don't be afraid to take her to your wife. So I'm assuming they had a quiet little wedding, and before they were called uh, to go to Bethlehem because of the taxes, uh, he, he was already married to her. And that, to my knowledge, is the only verse that substantiates or supports that, that thesis. And he knew her not until she had brought forth her firstborn son and called his name Jesus, God, my Savior. Jesus, let's pray. Father, it's my hope that everybody within the sound of my voice has understood and believed not only the purpose of the virgin birth, but the purpose that God came to earth to take our place. And it's my hope that they've called on him. And that in that final day when they stand in your presence, Jesus will say to his father, this is my son or this is my daughter. He or she called on me on that day back in 2000, 1900, whenever the call was made. I pray it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.